Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. So great to see all of your faces. <laughs> and I'm sure you love the new air conditioning system we've installed here. We've got it set to zero degrees, so the, the longer you sit here, the cooler it's going to get. So <laughs> okay, well, uh, Andre pretty much preached my sermon in his prayer, so we can just say amen. But let me just fill in a few details, okay? It's so wonderful to, to be a church. It's wonderful to be a church that has Christ at the center, and that doesn't only extend to the church, but down to every individual member of the church, doesn't it? And you and I can have good relationships with each other because of Jesus. And you and I can have relationships with each other where we are fellow laborers in Christ, where we don't have to be harsh with each other. We don't have to shout at each other and try and manipulate each other into doing what we want you to do. So today, as Andre was praying, we're going to speak about something that Peter raised as an issue, not only for leaders of the church, but for everybody in the church, young men in the church, and then Peter says, everybody in the church. And this really, it might seem like a very small thing as we start, but actually it's a very big thing. Peter makes this to be a very big thing. And I'm hoping that as we go through this text and as we see what Peter is urging us to do, he's urging us to be humble. It's an appeal for humility. I'm uh, going to open this up so we can see how, how big Peter really makes this thing. So let's have a look. This, today we're having a look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're just going to have a look at six verses. And what, what's going to happen here today, just so... You, you know, if you're wondering when I'm going to stop speaking, uh, give you a sort of a roadmap of where I'm going today. The first thing I'd like to do is I would like to go through these six verses, give you an outline of this, so you can see what Peter is saying. You can see the logic of what Peter is saying. So you can say, okay, I get what Peter is saying. But then in the second half, I'm going to ask, is this true of you and me? You know, am I a humble person? Am I a person who abuses the authority that I have? Do I abuse the relationships that I have with other people by doing the things that Peter is asking us not to do? So that's pretty much two, two parts. I'm going to go through the text, and then I'm going to just ask a whole lot of questions that you can sit and say yes or no to yourself. And while we're asking those questions, you can say to the Lord, Lord, thank you for the way in which you have helped me to become humble in this way or in that way or in that way. And you can also ask God if you find something in those questions, God, please help me, forgive me for uh, abusing my authority, for um, stretching my authority beyond what is warranted by Scripture. 
God, please forgive me for being harsh with the people around me. Forgive me, Lord, for trying to manipulate other people to do what I want them to do. So, if you want to know when I'm going to stop, it's at the end of those questions, okay? So, let's have a look at 1 Peter chapter 5 as we get going today. So, I was able to get a picture of Peter. You'll see on our next slide. And, you know, obviously that's not Peter, but I thought he looked like a nice, warm, friendly guy. So, you know, it sort of meshes with his theme in this text. So I chose that particular picture. He's friendly. You agree. I don't know. Maybe culturally he might look upset or angry to you. But for me, I thought he looked warm and friendly and approachable. And that's pretty much what Peter is speaking about in this text. He says in verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, To the elders among you, I appeal. I appeal. As a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. So he appeals. And it's interesting, as I was looking at this text, this word appeal is the same word as we use for the name of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. This word parakaleo in the Greek. And parakaleo is one of those very cool words in the the Greek New Testament because it speaks... It presupposes that somebody is struggling and then somebody stronger comes along and says, let me help you. When somebody calls out to you and says, help, they're saying to you, please just be with me in the struggle. Your presence with me and the added strength that I'm going to have from you being with me in the struggle is going to help me to get through. It's like when I was lying in the hospital bed thinking I was dying from my second heart attack, uh, one guy that I'd only just met, a pastor who had visited from Australia, he came and stood by my bed and he held my hand. And I couldn't believe what an encouragement that was to me. I just, I can't even measure what an encouragement, that small little jester, this guy coming, he didn't say much, he prayed for me, but he came and he held my hand. And when he let go of my hand, it felt like everything was going wrong again. And just, just that person's presence, par akaleo, you know, if you look at that Greek, it's calling somebody together with you, to be together, you know, by like, help me, please, come to be with me. And that's why we call the Holy Spirit the parakletos, because he comes to be with you. It's like you're saying, Holy Spirit, please, it's difficult for me to get through this world. Please come and be with me, and your presence is going to strengthen me. So this is what Peter is saying. He's appealing. He's he's calling these people so that we can be together on this one thing and we can move together with strength because we have unity in believing this one thing that Peter is putting out for us. What does he say? He says, I appeal as a fellow elder. I know what you're going through, elders of this church. And he says, a witness of Christ's sufferings. He brings it all the way up, back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, he's resetting the scene. I've seen Jesus. I saw the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. How many of us remember that moment when Jesus looks straight at Peter, when Peter denies him for the third time? And Peter turns around and he weeps bitterly. And he's calling these people, I saw that. I saw Jesus on trial. I saw Jesus being condemned. 
Brothers, remember that. You remember, this is the thing that we have in common. This is the man. We have in common our Lord, our Savior. I saw him going through that. And of course, Peter didn't see everything. He didn't see all of that because remember the disciples ran away. Peter tried to follow him for a distance. And eventually Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly while the whole crucifixion scene was playing out. But Peter, these scenes of the whole um, arrest and trial and crucifixion, he can't get them out of his mind. And he's seen the risen Christ. He's seen the hands, the holes in Jesus' hands. And he's seen the hole in Jesus' side. And he's seen the holes in Jesus' feet. And that's the tone. He's saying, okay, I, I saw Jesus. Remember, this is what we are all about. Jesus Christ. And that's a motivation he's bringing to you. He's, re- he's reminding us that I want, you, I want to call you into this place. We are motivated by Jesus Christ. Christ's sufferings. And because of Christ's sufferings, we are going to all share in his glory. Now, how are we going to get there from the time when we saw Jesus crucified, the man that we love, and we're heading for eternal glory? How are we going to get there? How are we going to treat each other in this framework where we, when we're gazing upon Jesus and we're looking forward to glory? How are we going to deal with each other in the time in between? And that's, that's exactly where we are, isn't it? So obviously we want to know, you know, wh- what is it that Peter has to say? How are we going to manage to move through this time? I appeal to you. I appeal to you, says Peter, as a fellow elder. So, yeah, of course, he's talking to elders. But let's see if that's all Peter's doing here. In verse 2, he gives them an instruction. And he says to the elders in the church, Be shepherds of God's flock. That is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. So he gives them two instructions, shepherd, and then serving as overseers. And what does a shepherd do? I I don't know how many of you have ever seen Sheep in the field and shepherds looking off. I mean, of course, I lived on the farm for a quarter of a century and many of you have had sheep and goats, you know, in villages that you've lived in. And so you you have something like that. But have any of you ever seen a shepherd walking around with his sheep and the one sheep doesn't want to go? So the shepherd comes and claps him on the ear like, hey, (laughs) we don't see people leading sheep like that, do we? I mean, the sheep follow the shepherd. The shepherd goes, he calls them, and the sheep follow the shepherd. They know his voice. Remember what Jesus taught in John chapter 10. And it's absolutely fascinating the way sheep follow a shepherd's voice. Where he goes, they go. You never see a shepherd clouting a sheep on the ear or clubbing him, saying, listen, when I walk, you walk. It's just bizarre. So Peter is saying to them, shepherd, Shepherd, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. The shepherd cares for his sheep. A pastor must care for his sheep. He he mustn't ever be in a situation where he's got to clout the sheep on the ear and tell them, you do what I'm telling you to do, because then we've lost the battle. We are shepherds. Pastors, elders are shepherds in the church. And of course, and he says, serving as overseers, a, a synonymous term. 
So a shepherd or an overseer, a shepherd is watching over his sheep, an overseer is watching over his sheep. He, he's, looking, he's looking at a bird's eye view and he's seeing, he's keeping tabs on what's happening on, in everybody's lives in the church and he's looking for, for a sheep that is wandering away and he wants to be closer to that sheep. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that God has given the church gifts? People who serve willingly, not because they must, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. It's a beautiful thing, according to Ephesians 4, that God has given our church gifts, and God gives churches gifts, and those gifts are pastors, shepherds, overseers, to look after the sheep and the flock. But now notice verse 3. He, this, is, this is the whole point I'm trying to make today. This all surrounds this one, this one little comment that Peter makes in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not lording it over, or not being authoritarian, or not being domineering, or, you know, if you don't know what all of those words mean, not being bossy. Bossy is a good synonym for this. Not being bossy with the sheep. You know, not demanding that they do what you want them to do. And of course, we have a church. We've had a different number of pastors in this church. The Lord has blessed us with more pastors than many churches that we know. Many churches have one pastor and a couple of elders who who work full time. But we've had... Huge privilege in this church to have a number of pastors who are full-time engaged in caring for the flock. And what a privilege that is. But this is a question for you, okay, as a church. I don't suggest you answer this question aloud right now. Maybe just answer it in your heart. And then if the answer is yes, you can come to me and talk to me about this afterwards, okay? Have the shepherds in your church been harsh with you? Have you had an incident in this church where the shepherds in your church have been uh, harsh in an uncalled for way? Have you been bullied by the elders and the shepherds in this church? If the answer is no, you say praise God. Because that is exactly what we're aiming for in this church. We don't want to bully you. We don't want to push you around. We don't want to dominate you. We don't want to be authoritarians. We don't want to set up an opinion and say, if you don't do this, what we're saying, then you are our enemy. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying not lording it over those entrusted to you. Not pushing the sheep around. Not bullying them. Not making them do what you want them to do. Because Christ is our example. We look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where Peter goes in verse 3. He says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. In, In an ideal church, you should be able to look at your pastors and say, I want to be like that. I want to live a gentle life like that pastor lives. I want to have the kind of care that that pastor has for the people in the church. I want to have the kind of love that this pastor shows. I want to be a person who gives freely and generously like this pastor gives. 
And a church that can say that about their pastors, a, pers- a church that can say, we want to be like our pastors, that church can praise God for the way that God has equipped that church with godly men to lead. And really, at Living Hope Church, that's all we want. We just want to honor God by being humble shepherds, overseers, who are not lording it over you as a congregation, but we want to be examples to the flock. We want to be consistent. We want to be loving. We want to insist on what is right, but we don't want to insist on our own opinions. We want to care for you in every way we can. So we don't want to lord it over those that have been entrusted to us. We want to be examples to the flock. And then in verse 4, he, say, he answers the question, why? Uh, just connecting to verse 3, he says there, um, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing. Then he says, as God wants you to be. So this is one of the reasons why. This is one of the motivations for shepherds in the church. Why do I want to serve as a shepherd? Why do I want to be humble? Why do I not want to bully the sheep around? Because God wants me to be a humble shepherd who doesn't bully the sheep, who's, who's not lording it over you. Isn't that a wonderful motivation for you as a believer? I don't have a design to become a powerful pastor who exercises authority over many people. All I want to do personally is serve. I want to be your servant. I know in Africa that's a bit weird sometimes when I tell people that, like no way. So. <laughs> an older guy will never serve a younger guy or an older man will never serve a younger woman. Like, that's weird, man. That's very weird. But that's exactly what we're aiming for. I want to be your servant. And the pastors in this church want to be your servants. Why? Because that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to love you and serve you and be humble in that way. And then he says in verse 4, the why question. that's That's what God wants you to be. Then he says, when the chief shepherd appears... Ah, so here we have Peter right in verse 1 saying he's a witness of Christ's sufferings and he's a, a fellow sharer in the glory that is coming. But then he says again, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So he's putting our eyes on Christ and then he's putting our eyes on eternal glory. And he's saying, that's why we must do this. Because when you're received into eternal glory, and when you see the chief shepherd, you're going to say, I wish I had been more humble. I wish I had been a shepherd who cared for the flock more. I wish I had been more of a servant to the people that you, Lord, have entrusted to me. Because he's going to look at me and say, "Ah, oh, here's the flock. And I'm going to wish... It's going to be so worth it in that moment to have spent my life completely for that and for every pastor to have spent his life as a servant in the church. This is completely unlike a business, isn't it? In a business, I mean, where do you get servant mentality in a business? All you get is, they're not paying me for this, so I'm not going to do it. You know, that's not part of my job description. (laughs) I mean, how many times did I hear that at work? You know, people who will put the box over there, but they won't put it actually in the room because it's not part of their job description. 
You know, things get so petty. But for a shepherd, we go beyond the call of duty. Because that's what shepherds have to do. They have to work shifts at night, one looking for a sheep that's wandering off. So the chief shepherd is coming. And when the chief shepherd, chief shepherd appears, the faithful pastor will receive the crown of life, the crown of glory that will never fade away. When will it fade away? Never. Imagine standing before your Lord and Savior forever and ever and ever and ever and you are identified by the fact that you have a crown of glory because you shepherded the people under your care well. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So, before we move on to the next thing that Peter says, I think it must be obvious, you know, you've probably worked this out by now, but just in case you didn't, um, it's obvious that there is legitimate authority, isn't there? That's what Peter's speaking about. He's saying that in the church there is a legitimate structure of authority, that we do have shepherds, we do have overseers in the church, and that the members, the sheep, must follow the example and they must follow their leaders. They are responsible to do that. Obviously, Peter is setting up authority here, isn't he? He's showing us that there is legitimate authority. But when he points out that the overseer must not be overbearing, he must not lord it over, he must not, must not be bossy with the people that he shepherds, he's speaking about the abuse of authority, isn't he? He's, there's a lot of shepherds who love to abuse authority. Now, this is where it gets interesting as we go through this text. And we almost finished with the outline of the text before we start getting to the questions. In verses 5 to 7, notice what he says. He says, young men, in the same way. In other words, just like I've been saying to the elders in the church, in case you were thinking that the sermon is all about elders, it's not entirely about elders, it's about you as well, if you're a young man in this church. He's saying, in the same way, he says, be submissive to those who are older. And on one level, of course, he's speaking about the elders of the church, but in another way, he's also speaking about men who are more mature in the faith, just generally, who are not recognized as elders in the church. Just a young man can learn from the experience and maturity of an older man in the church. And that's wonderful. He says, be submissive. But isn't it interesting how he's just, when he appeals to young men, he hasn't pulled out all of these other things. He hasn't said, young men, be shepherds, serve as overseers. He doesn't list all of the things that Peter said about the elders and the shepherds and the pastors. But he picks out one thing, the submission to authority. Be submissive to the older men. Isn't that interesting? What does a submissive person look like? He's humble, isn't he? He's a, he's a person who's meek, who says, okay, yes, uh, I really wanted to do this, but because you've advised me not to do this, I'm not going to do that anymore, even if you really, really want to do that. That's hard to do. And it's interesting how he pulls out this one thing, submission, being a, humble, a person who's humble enough just to listen to godly advice from an older man, 
And he says, young men, that's the one thing I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and why? Because that's the one thing that is so hard for a young man, isn't it? It's so hard for a young man to, be, to submit to authority because he's just he's coming out of his childhood and he's becoming somebody and he's becoming independent and he's beginning to understand how the world works and he's carving his path. And now this old guy comes along and he says, I don't think that's wise. Like, what do you mean it's not wise, man? I've thought this thing through. You know, what can you tell me? You're out of touch with the way the world works. You're like, hey, okay. Well, uh, I'm just advising you and, uh, you know, you can go any way you choose, but this is my advice, okay? And I wish, man, if I'm speaking to you as younger men, I really wish I'd taken the advice of older men when I was younger. I could have saved myself so much trouble. You know, I could have saved myself such long circuits of struggling. But isn't it interesting that he calls you, young men, to be submissive to those who are older? Boom, full stop, that's it. One big charge. But it's the hardest thing you're ever going to have to do, hey? Just to submit to the leadership in the church and to men who are older and wiser. But then notice, he doesn't leave it with young men. He pulls out one instruction again. To everybody, he says, to all of you. In verse 5, the second half of verse 5, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why does he just pull out this one thing? He he describes the work of the pastor so well, the servant, the one who's not greedy for money, the one who's longing for eternal glory. Then he comes to young men and he says, submit. And he comes to everybody in the church and he says, be humble. Be humble with each other. You know how hard it is to fight with a humble person? It's so difficult when you, when you get angry and you come against somebody and you're really going to give them a piece of your mind. But they like, you know, yeah, forgive me, that was, was wrong of me to do that. I mean, how do you fight with a person like that when they just keep, they just put out the fire all the time with their humility? They soften it. They, they come back with gentle answers and they... And they show you respect, even though you're being disrespectful to them. Isn't it difficult to be humble? I think one of the reasons he asks everybody in the church to be humble is because that is such a hard thing to do. Humility is a strength that is difficult to cultivate. And then he gives you motivation. He says, why should you be humble? And he appeals to reason. By quoting an Old Testament text. You know, let's reason this out, okay? I could either obey this instruction and be humble, or I can disobey this instruction and keep doing what I want to do, where I can be the powerful person, I can carve my path, I can be the individual who does his own thing in the church. So he says, he pulls out Psalm 118, verse 16 and 17, and he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, let's say, what do you want, okay? (laughs) What do you want? Do you want God to oppose you? Any hands? Who wants God to oppose them? Okay, so the, the logic is working here. You know, be humble because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you want God to give you grace? Do you want God to be soft and gentle with you? Like a shepherd, the great chief shepherd? The one that Peter saw crucified? Do you want him to care for you and love for you and help you through your life? 
Do you want Him to come to you and give you strength so that you can get through difficult situations when nobody else wants to support you? Of course you do. Be humble. That is simple instruction from Peter, and it, it seems so complicated, doesn't it? But it's just a simple matter of coming to God and saying, Oh God, please help me to be a humble person. You know how difficult it is when you have a home, for example, where a husband is aggressive and angry with his wife, and the wife is afraid to, to, you know, to retaliate to her husband, so she comes out and she's aggressive and bossy and domineering with her kids. And then you see those kids playing with each other and they're fighting with each other. You know, they want to rule over each other in the playground. Fighting for toys, kicking each other. I mean, that would never happen among church kids, I know. that Church kids never kick each other. But imagine a church so bad, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Imagine a church so bad that the kids kick each other while they're playing outside. I mean, you see this whole thing telescoping down. But what is Paul saying to the elders of the church? He's saying to us, be humble. And then he's saying to all of the members in the congregation, look at these examples and live like these examples. And of course, this all telescopes down from older, wiser, more mature Christians down to those who are less mature. And they're supposed to look at their elders and see an example to follow. So this process starts somewhere, doesn't it? Being humble, you know, not lording it over each other. It starts somewhere where even children want to lord it over each other in the playground. Children need an example of gentle, humble, submissive relationships a little bit higher up in their parents or even in their older siblings. They need, those parents need an example in the elders of their church. What a beautiful church when the elders, when the leadership of the church are humble and they're not lording it over each other. They're not lording it over the sheep, not bossing the sheep around and clouting them on the ear to make them do what they want them to do. What a beautiful church that is. I'm just trusting that God is, is helping you just to stop in this moment and say, I don't, God, I don't want to be opposing you. I don't want... Like in Afrikaans, I don't want the ayak to keep coming out. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to be the individual who's forcing my will on other people. Help me, God, just to listen to reason and be humble. Just before we move on a little bit, I just want to point out one thing, and that is, you know, like I was saying to our systematic theology class yesterday, in the New Testament there are a number of um, verb forms. And those verbs appear in the, you know, they're passive verbs. They, they're passive, indica, uh, passive imperatives. And of course, of course, that sounds very fancy. A passive imperative sounds very fancy. But basically, what, what a passive imperative is, is it's, it's different to a normal imperative. A normal imperative is a command. It's a command verb. Say, pick up the cup, you know, cut the lawn. I'm, I'm saying, you know, I'm implying you cut the lawn. That's an that's a active imperative, isn't it? It's an instruction. It's a command. But what is a passive imperative then? You know, so if you're using the passive, you're saying, have this happened to you? You know, like the ball was kicked. 
you know, the ball received the action. So if I'm saying to you, be transformed, like in Romans 12, remember I preached on this, the passive imperative, how do you be transformed? What must I do to be transformed? How do I let transformation happen to me? It's a bit confusing, isn't it, when you have a passive imperative. And I think these passive imperatives are amazing. I mean, there's there seem to be about 10 of them in the New Testament. There might be more, there might be less, depending on what you class as a passive imperative. But there seem to be about 10 of them in the New Testament. And it seems that the reason the writers of the New Testament included these passive imperatives that are so confusing, hard to understand, is because they're saying that it's not all about what you do. It's not all about you saying, okay, today I'm going to get up and I'm going to be humble and that's it. I've made my resolution, and I'm going to be humble now. Because the whole New Testament understands the fact that this is difficult. It's hard for you to do this. It's going to take a process of growth, and you deciding to do this is not all that's involved. Obviously, this is a spiritual reality, and you have the great God of the universe residing in you as a believer, and He is helping you to perform this function. So in other words... A passive imperative could probably be understood like this. Stop hindering the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and clear the way so that you can, you can become a humble person. Stop hanging on to things in which you're proud. Stop hanging on to this, I need to be in charge of this person. Lay those things down. That person stands or falls before their own master, God himself. So it's, it's interesting that this one little thing can be, become so complicated, isn't it? A passive imperative. Why a passive imperative? Because you're not the only performer here. Stop hindering the work of the Spirit and say, God, help me to lay down all of the things that are in the way of me becoming humble by your power. And what a, what a wonderful breakthrough that could be. If I could just stop and say, okay, God, I'm going to stop fighting when people want to say things to me that are insulting and I want to hit back at them with something, God, help me to stop doing that. Help me to stop seeing that as desirable. Help me to stop seeing that as even a viable option. I don't want you, God, to oppose me while I'm opposing other people. So the passive imperative is actually very interesting, isn't it? It's different to a direct command. A direct command just bypasses the whole person. If I say, cut the grass or pick up the glass... Um, I'm completely disregarding how you feel, your whole process, your stage in life. I'm disregarding everything. I'm just giving you a command that doesn't take no for an answer, isn't it? But a passive imperative is a, t a sort of a reasoning with an individual and saying, okay, allow this whole process that is going to happen to take place by stop fighting, stop fighting against it. You know, agree that this is the right direction to go. All right, so as I was saying... That's, that's the first half, okay? We've got Peter's outline, what Peter's saying. He's seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus' sufferings. He's appealed to the shepherds to be humble, not to be grabby and you know, greedy for stuff and you know, lording it over the sheep. And then he's come to the young men and he said, just be submissive to those who are examples, the, the elders and older men who are examples in the church. And then he said to everybody, just be humble because if, you, if you're not working towards humility, God is opposing you. God is standing in your way. Whatever you're going to do, God is standing in your way. And, and you don't want that, do you? So then the question is this. Am I lording it over people? 
How do I know if I'm lording it over people? Because, you know, if I'm bossy, if I'm domineering, you know, if I'm pushing people around and, dis- and making people do what I want them to do, how do I know? And the first question is, I've only got four questions here, but inside of the, each of these four questions is a, is a couple of sub-questions to make the category clearer and wider, okay? So question number one, you can see this guy here. Is he domineering? Uh, if you met this dude, you would probably say, this guy's a bit creepy. But, I mean, he's, he looks pretty angry, doesn't he? Do you become harsh with people? That's the first question. And Now, these four questions, they come from a, a lady who wrote a blog for the Nine Marks website. And her name is uh, Taylor Turkington. So, you know, if you, if you want to look for more on this, you can go to the Nine Marks website and you can find her article and, and there's probably some other stuff there. In fact, you can just Google. If you want to Google um, the difference between having authority and being an authoritarian, you can find a lot. There's a lot of good articles that I read on this during the week. But all I'm going to do here is I'm going to ask you these four questions. Am I domineering? Am I bossy? Is God standing in my way because I'm not allowing him to cultivate humility in my life? I'm fighting against that. Do you become harsh with people? When someone doesn't understand or agree with you, what do you do? Do you say it louder? Uh, could I have some coffee too, please? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear you. Can I have some coffee, please? You know, what do I have to do to get coffee around here? <laughs> you know, I don't know. You don't act like that, but I mean, you get the point, eh? How many of us speak louder, especially when someone who's hard of hearing, you know, when you speak to them and they didn't hear what you said, uh, there's a way to say it louder so they can hear, and there's a way to say it in such a way that you have been inconvenienced and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be required to answer louder so that person can hear you, eh? With kids, when we speak to kids, um, is it their actual hearing that's a problem when they're not listening to you, or is it their attitude towards you? So it's so easy, like, please pick up these toys. Please just pick up these toys. That's domineering, isn't it? I totally understand if you're a school teacher. When someone doesn't understand or agree with you, do you say it louder? Okay, you get what I'm saying. Do you become irritated when other people are not gentle with you? Isn't it funny how I always want somebody else to be gentle with me? doesn't matter what I do. I want everyone to come back gently to me. But I don't want to be gentle with other people. Sometimes I want the permission to be more rough with people, more abrupt, more more blunt with other people. Do you like techniques that make other people do what you want them to do? How many of us have heard of this stuff? You know, in the business world, there's whole courses that you can do on how to make other people do what you want them to do. It's weird. If you ever catch me or one of the pastors in this church trying to exercise a technique to make you do what we want you to do, you know that we've crossed the line. If we're not gentle with you, if we don't speak with gentle tones, if we don't speak the truth in love, if we don't care for you in that way, you don't have to listen to us. Don't be manipulated by us, elders in this church, okay? When somebody confesses sin to you, what do you do? Do you rebuke them to make them feel the weight 
of their sin more? Or do you embrace them, embrace them to set them free? How sad it is when somebody says, oh, you know, I, sh- I should have listened to you. You know, I took this route and I got stuck in the traffic and somebody broke my window and stole my handbag. Well, why did you drive in that place, man? <laughs> you know, my mom had this situation in the traffic once where somebody came along and grabbed the, the car door. You know, the door was unlocked. They grabbed the door open and tried to grab her handbag. And she told somebody else, and they said, well, why did you drive with the doors unlocked? I mean, as if it's her fault that somebody tried to steal her handbag. It's weird, huh? What do you do when somebody confesses sin to you? Do you rebuke them? Or do you feel, you know, do you want them to feel the weight? So like, now I've got them under control. If they want my, uh, if they want my favor back to them, you know, if they want my favor, then they're going to have to do the right things that I think are the right things for them to do. Are you content when people do what you want them to do? Or are you happier when someone's, someone's heart is in the right place, even if they struggle to do what's right? Somebody, maybe your children, they struggle. They just go on and on and on, struggling with the same thing over and over and over. And you can see that there's two options. One is I can focus on the thing that they're doing and just hammer them until they get the thing right. Or else I can sit down and I can hear what the struggle this child is having is and I can say, I can work with this child on having the right attitude even while they are failing. Do you insist that people get everything right or are you willing to struggle with a person's internal struggle while they're going through that difficulty? Are you patient enough to do that? If anyone has a right to be harsh with failing sinners, of course, it is Jesus. But Jesus was a humble servant. No shouting, no bullying, but embracing and caring. Okay. So that's the first question. Do you become harsh with people? And I think if you, anything like me, you'll know that um, we have to answer a lot of those questions. Yes. I've been harsh with people like that. And... God, forgive me for the things that I've done and said to people that are harsh. And I pray that God would help you to be a person who thinks about this before you end up in a situation, you know, in your your situation like this, before you respond by being harsh or saying it louder. And then the second question, question number two, is do you think that you know what people's intentions are? How many of us fall into this trap? I know what you were thinking. How many times have you said that to somebody? I know what you're thinking. You know, somebody did something and you interpreted that as an insult or as, you know, an offense to you. But you have no clue what that person was thinking. You have no idea what was going on inside of their heart. And the sad thing about a person who thinks they know what someone else is thinking or thinks they know what someone else's intentions are is that you can't persuade that person otherwise. I recently had some interactions with a person and I told him a situation and that person says, no, you know, this is what's happening. And I'm like, hey, I was there. I was a witness. You know, I was telling you the information about this, but he came back to me and he construed it, he constructed the situation in such a way that 
it was completely not the situation that I told him about. And didn't matter how much I tried to explain, it just became more and more uh, unpleasant to discuss it with a person. He stuck to his view, I stuck to my view. And I was like, dude, if you just listened to what I was saying, this whole thing could have been much easier to deal with. Do you think you know what people's intentions are? Is it annoying to be treated by a doctor who doesn't first ask questions before he treats you? You know, you come with something. You like describe all of these details. And then they're like, oh yeah, just eat these pills, eat these pills, eat these pills. And you're like, no, that's not what I need. Actually, I haven't finished telling you my story yet. You know, I know my stomach is a problem, but it was actually my foot that was a problem. That's what I need help with. No, 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 these will fix your stomach. Okay? No hassle. Just come back to me in, you know, 90 days, you know, if this medicine doesn't work. You know, irritating, man, when people don't just listen to what you're saying so they can work out what's really going on, not what it just seems like at the snap of the fingers. Do you try and exercise power over people by judging their intentions without asking enough questions? And how annoying it is, is it when somebody does that? And don't people, um, doesn't that destroy your relationship with a person? When, when some, you come to tell somebody a situation, they don't listen properly, they go away with an idea, oh, this person is just like this, you know, they sort of categorize you. And then they always think of you like that. But they got the wrong idea because they didn't ask enough questions. What if a person accuses you of being proud or rebellious or people-pleasing when, when you're not normally like that? When they, they know your trend, they know your trend of life, but then they come to you and they construe something, oh, well, this is all you are. And that's, it happens all the time. You know what I'm talking about, eh? People paint you like that all the time. We paint people like that all the time. And Peter is saying, please, man, you know, we have to put an end to this. We have to say this is not the way in which God is going to build this church. Fighting, being aggressive with each other rather than being humble enough to listen to somebody, even if you don't think that person is important enough to listen to. It's not humble. And I trust that this is not what the elders in our church are, are portraying to you. I hope when you follow us that this is not what you're following. This is what Peter's warning us against. You know, this lording it over other people. It's a terrible, ugly thing, isn't it? And then the third question, question number three. Do you get concerned about control? Do you get concerned about control? You know, does it bother you that there's things happening around you that you can't control? And I know that most of us are going to have to answer yes. What keeps you awake at night? If there's something bothering your mind, what is it that keeps you awake? It's the issue of control, isn't it? There's something happening. It's like a train just rushing through a station and I can't stop it. You know, somebody's going out and he's going to tell somebody else something about me and that person's going to get a wrong impression about me. You know, maybe there's money at stake. I'm going to lose my job or my salary, you know, something like that. And I can't stop this. I can't stop this from happening. Do you think you know better so you don't need other people's help? That's quite an interesting question. Do you think you know better than other people? 
I don't need to listen to this person. He doesn't know. Strange thing about that is that a person who thinks he knows better is a person who doesn't think he needs somebody else's advice, but he thinks that everybody needs his advice. You need me to tell you what to do, but you don't care about what that person thinks. Is your way the only way when you're doing something? There's my way and there's the wrong way. Do you stretch the boundaries of your authority? Do you insist that people do things that the Bible doesn't even insist on them doing? It's funny how false teachers in the, in the New Testament, you see them all over the place. One big trademark of theirs is that they keep going beyond the boundaries of the Word of God. They keep telling people to do more, 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 more. And if those people don't do those things, they're out of grace with the leader. And that's terrible. That's sad. Do you do that to other people? Do you stretch your authority beyond reasonable limits? That was Matthew 23. If you want to read a good chapter about this, you see the Pharisees doing this in the whole of Matthew chapter 23. Do you feel strongly about a lot of small details in your life? Do the little details matter? Do you sweat the small stuff? Do you care more about what other people do than who they are? This is pretty much what we were talking about with the intentions. You know, are you willing to struggle with somebody who's struggling to get something right because you know that inside, you know what their heart is like and you know that they're really working to deal with this? Or do you... Are you happy just to look at the outside situation? Do you want to control what people do? Another thing is like with our children. You know, especially when you have little children and you don't want your little children to embarrass you. Are you willing to crack down on your kids just so they don't embarrass you? Or are you willing to work with those kids and to come to understand them so that you can best help them? A humble parent is a powerful, powerful parent. You can crush a person who loves you by focusing on actions that you don't like rather than taking the time to listen to them and care for them humbly. It takes humility as an adult to care for a child's heart, doesn't it? Just to hear, listen to them and hear what they're saying. Just learn their world. Understand how they're understanding life. Do you manipulate people to get what you want them to do by nagging them or manipulating them emotionally? Do you micromanage people? Do you threaten them? If you don't do this, I'm going to do this, or I'm not going to do this. Do you give them unrealistic warnings? Do you bully people with your knowledge of the Bible? I know more about the Bible than you do, and so you better listen to me. <laughs> Just bizarre, man. And that brings us to our final question, question number four. Do you avoid being transparent about your own sin? Do you see other people's sin as more serious than your sin? Do you criticize gossiping, for example, when you yourself gossip? Man, this is not a beautiful thing at all. You know, when we exercise authority in such a way that we bully people, we push people around, we use all of these tools to make people do what we want them to do. And Peter is saying, no, man. Once you've seen Jesus, 
Once you've witnessed the sufferings of Christ, once you've understood what it's going to be like when the chief shepherd appears and the reward you're going to receive for being humble, this stuff doesn't look pretty anymore. It doesn't look beautiful. It looks wrong and sad. Are you afraid to admit that you struggle with the same kind of sins to people who confess their sins to you? And that's hard, isn't it? Somebody comes, you want to be the, the mature guy or girl. Like, hmm, yeah, I can see how somebody as weak as you could struggle with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've still got a lot of growth. You've still got to grow a lot. <laughs> Not like me. You should be like me. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's what attitude we like to adopt with people when they're struggling, isn't it? We want to be like the superior one. You know, we've got this under control. I know sometimes in counseling... Sometimes we go the other way. Sometimes I've confessed sins to people in trying to identify with them. And later on, one person came back to me and said, Yo, when you confessed that sin, I was shocked. <laughs> I didn't mean to shock them, but they were shocked. Okay. <laughs> but are you afraid to just simply admit sin? You know, yeah, I struggle with that too, man. You know, are your leaders in your church transparent? Do we give the impression that we are above sin? Or do we openly say we're sinners as well? We also struggle with sin. And in appropriate places, we share some of our own struggles with people. Do you love attention and approval from others? Does it upset you when they ignore you or disagree with what you say? Do you want people to see you as more accomplished than they are? Some people are more accomplished than others. But that doesn't mean that you have to insist that they... Look up at you and worship you as one who, a great one who is accomplished. You can be humble with people no matter how accomplished you are. In fact, pastors who study the word of God, they can love so much. They can love bringing the word of God into clear vision for the people so much that when people say, wow, that was amazing, the pastor can say, yeah, they're like me. (laughs) Meanwhile, it's the word of God that's amazing, isn't it? How deceitful, how terrible it is when pastors come and say, yeah, that was my word. You know, that was my words that that impressed these people. So I must be impressive, you know. Terrible and sad, man. That's exactly what happened in Matthew 23 as well with the, the, the Pharisees. They love to walk around in these flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace like, you know, oh, great one, you know, basking in your sunshine. We don't want pastors like that in our church, do we? We don't have Bible boys carrying our Bibles for us. We don't have special thrones on the stage for the pastor. In fact, we, we don't even insist on being pastor, you know, being called pastor. We don't even need a title. I know people feel comfortable with that, and we're not going to say, hey, stop it, because that's domineering. But, hey, we don't care. We don't care if you call us this. You can call me, hey, you, and that works. I'm serious. Absolutely. Are you threatened by people who excel beyond you in knowledge, wisdom, skill, or wealth? So there's just four questions we can ask ourselves. After we've seen Peter and his beautiful picture of what pastors should be, and at the core of that is not lording it over the sheep. We've seen that one core he brings to the young men and he says, be submissive to those who are older. Simple as that, but really, really hard. And then, in addition to that, he says, all of you, 
Be humble in your relationships with each other. Why? Because God is going to oppose you if you're not humble in your relationships with other people. Stop fighting. Stop getting in the way of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to bring you down to a point where you are beautifully humble. Because the chief shepherd is coming. I'll say this in conclusion. Peter sees the beauty of the suffering of Jesus, the chief shepherd. And he desires you and I to imitate him. He also desires all pastors and elders to imitate Jesus as well as you who are church members. This involves learning to care for other people, serving them eagerly and willingly. This is not easy, but God works in you to bring this about. At the heart of this lifestyle is humility that helps you to avoid the pride of lording it over other people. You are probably lording it over, over, over other people if you become harsh with them, if you think you know their intentions, if you are concerned about control, if you are not open about your own sin. Ask God to help you to see the beauty of the suffering Jesus, the chief shepherd as Peter did. Ask God to help you to appreciate Jesus' example in your pastors and elders. Ask God to forgive you for lording it over other people and ask him to help you to start cultivating God-honoring, humble life. Lord, thank you for this. These few moments that we've had to open First uh, Peter 5. And Lord, you know there's always more to be said because your word is vast and beautiful and glorious. But I pray just these few thoughts, Lord, today, that you would cause these words from your word, your glorious word, to settle in our hearts and to change us, to convict us of sin, or to stop us on a path of self-destruction where we are opposing God. Help us, Lord, to look at ourselves and, and say, God, please help me to be humble. God, help me just to accomplish this one thing. Help me to focus on this one thing just this week. And Lord, I pray that you would make our church even more beautiful, that you would start with the elders of the church and make us humble people in our relationships with each other, humble people as we exercise God-given authority over the sheep, the flock that you have entrusted to us. And Lord, I pray that that would telescope down into every member, every relationship in the church, that we would be soft and humble and gentle with one another. And we pray, Lord, that there would be great glory for your name through a simple, humble, God-honoring church. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name.